Two crees in a pod. Two crees in a pod. Natani means. Yeah. Let's go. They pushed us to this point, frustrations of a common man Manifest the destiny, preach and pledge the promised land I'm stuck between taking my journey, live with no honor Like what's the use of my kids, can't taste clean water A child born into a world, revolution's not a choice Fighting to be heard, so we make them hear our voice Remember ancestors, anguish, lightning in our veins Hear it in a language when they are kissing for the rain I am product of people that persevere, persecution Paint me so creator sees me if I go out shooting Experience our pain when our women disappear daily Anxious to be angry, pacifists might hate me Trolls on the internet constantly trying to bait me We move in silence, cover of the night Learning from the wolves in the forest Tracking enemies in the woods Reincarnations of warriors riding for salvation Or are we false prophets when we submit to temptation? Colonization is a hell of a drug We all seem to go crazy when we fall in love I said colonization is a hell of a drug We all seem to go crazy when we fall in love I said Welcome to Two Crees in a Pod. I biggest sees Nitsigasun, My name is Amber Dion, and I am from the Kihiwan Cree Nation here in Treaty 6 Territory. I'm a mother, a social worker, and assistant professor with McEwen University School of Social Work, and I'm joined by my lovely co-host. Welcome, my name is Terry Sungens. I'm from Salt Lake Cree Nation, and I'm the Director of Indigenous Initiatives in Kiowatsin at McEwen University. We are so honored that you chose to join us today. Welcome to our first episode of Two Crees in a Pod. Um, Terry and I are really excited about uh, this episode. Uh, we want to ensure that we do a couple of things first. Uh, one, we want to acknowledge uh, the place that we are currently in, the space that we're in. Uh, so we want to acknowledge the fact that today we are uh, gathered for this podcast uh, safely uh, at Blue Quills uh, University. Um, this place is important to us and we'll all speak to the importance of that in our own ways. Um, I want to acknowledge that this is a place uh, that I started my journey as uh, formally as a social worker. This is where I started my social work education and this is where I truly began to understand myself. Um, the other important piece for me is that this is also the place that my father uh, was forcibly sent to residential school when it was Blue Quill's Indian Residential School. And so I want to acknowledge that place. I want to acknowledge where we are. Um, and again, I'm joined by Terry, and then we will also introduce our guest. And so Terry, is there anything that you want to add in relation to the space that we're in? Yeah, well, hello, everybody. Um, one of the things that I wanted to share, uh, my connection to Blue Quills um, as well, is that my father also attended uh, the residential school here um, from the age of five years old until about the age of 16. Um, I actually started my schooling at Blue Quills when it was a daycare. Uh, so I was probably about four or five years old uh, when I started coming here and my mom was going to school. Um, I also took my two previous degrees here at the university um, and I really owe my own healing journey and my own education and learning about my identity, my worldview to this place. 
Um, it was a place that really grounded me. It was a place that brought me back to my connection to ceremony, to relationships, to the land. Um, and I'm so grateful to be here today and to be able to start in this space. And also acknowledging that we grounded this, this project in ceremony. Um, and so prior to us doing our first episode, we were able to be in ceremony to ensure that what is being shared is, is shared in a good way um, and from our truths. So thank you. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we want to um, also acknowledge that we are joined by one of our mentors uh, and our auntie, uh, Dr. Leona Makokis is joining us today for our first episode. And again, we really wanted to ensure that our first episode um, was uh, with someone that uh, Terry and I both, um, I know, Terry, I'm going to speak for Terry right now, but I know that Terry and I would both say that uh, Leona has been instrumental in our development and growth, not just as social work practitioners, uh, but as women, as mothers. And, uh, and so we want to acknowledge that um, what Leona has uh, contributed to, to our lives. And so uh, again, we're joined by Dr. Leona Makokis. Uh, she graciously accepted uh, her being here with us today. And, uh, and so we want to ask you, Leona, um, you know, to introduce yourself in the way that, uh, that you would like to introduce yourself. And then we have a couple of questions for you. So we'll, we'll carry on with questions after you introduce yourself. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me into this circle. Uh, my name is Leona Makokis. I'm originally from Sad Lake um, and was at the time, uh, prior to being uh, brought to Bukul's Indian Residential School, the community was very, very traditional. The only thing that was missing was ceremonies and that was because it was outlawed. And so I had the experience of living in a community with relatives, with the language, um, with traditions, um, a lot of humor, a lot of laughter, a lot of helping each other. And so I feel I was blessed being raised by a community who was healthy. Mm. And so I remember that. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, um, and then I later became a member of Kihiwan. I'm still a member of Kihiwan. It's a wonderful place to be. And uh, so what I bring to this podcast is basically my lived experience, you know, living in a, a healthy language-based community to one of residential school. And then the transition that my parents were involved and my aunties and my uncles, my grandfathers were involved in the takeover of Blue Quill, the peaceful sit-in, where the change occurred that we began, we began to recognize and our elders our community members truly believed that they could do a better job mm -hmm. and that um, and then of course through the throughout the years i became an employee of blue quills i did my admin degree through blue quills i got my later i got my b.ed and then came back as a president and got my through while working and got my master's from san diego state university and my doctorate uh, from University of San Diego. But the beautiful thing about that is while I was going to get my formal education, Western education, I also returned back to ceremony um, to my extended family and uh, was really 
gifted with a lot of wonderful mentors, the elders who were so open to sharing their communication. But in sharing that communication, the message was, you have this knowledge, you share it. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm invited to, to uh, speak to the learnings and the teachings, that's what I've done. I do is, is tr to share what I've learned as well as um, the storytelling in terms of my own experience and my own and how I got this knowledge and also I continue to share what our elders have taught me and I think it's it's our responsibility to do that it's not just to do the academic learning and then we keep it to ourselves my late uncle Mike used to say um, you know you can have all of this information all the world's experiences different experiences and if you keep that to yourself it, it's just information for you Mm -hmm. Wisdom is when you're able to share that so people can learn from you and continue that journey. Mm -hmm. So, um, and so th thank you. Uh, thank you for that, that introduction. And a couple things came up for me when I was listening to you. And one was about, um, and just thinking about the importance of space, the importance of where we are right now, and the importance of, uh, of the meaning that it has mm -hmm. for all three of us. Um, and so I would love for us to explore uh, some of that about the importance of space or space-based or place-based learning. Um, and then the other thing that you mentioned that, that resonated with me was around the importance of storytelling. And I know that when Terry and I uh, started talking about the importance of this podcast um, was about storytelling, mm -hmm. you know, bringing, ensuring that Indigenous storytelling is at the forefront of education, mm -hmm. uh, rather than, you know, solely looking mm -hmm. at academic peer reviewed journals and articles. Those are important. They have value, but indigenous storytelling and sitting here like this and listening to you share stories is just as important, uh, in our education. Um, and you and I can attest mm -hmm. to that being here at blue quills, right. Of the importance of sitting in the classroom. We were talking about George Breton earlier and about how George used to come into the classroom and we'd be learning about theories and we'd be learning about all these different things in social work academia and then George would come in and share a story and it related completely to what we were talking about um, and George would just pop in and say something and you're like oh that makes sense that connects uh, and so I want to acknowledge those two things around space-based place-based learning and the importance of that in our education and then also that storytelling piece and how important that is in education. And so do you have anything that you want to add in relation to that? I think that when I was in school at Blue Quills, one of the really important things was that I wasn't always learning from our instructor. There was always opportunities to sit in circle in the classroom. Um, and through that process, we were learning amongst our peers. We were learning from our peers through stories. Yeah. And so there was so much conversations of stories that were happening in that space um, that we, in a sense, we, we situate or we see ourselves in those stories. Yep. And we learn and they stick with us and they stay with us and they teach us something, um, which is really important. And I think, you know, when we, when we look at um, these episodes, it's important also that we respect that in a sense of leaving it open and knowing that whatever needs to be said needs to be said yeah. and the stories that come through um, are meant to be 
there and, and said here. So, yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's, that's true. I, um, from my own experience, uh, in the 70s when my parents were involved in the takeover of Blue Quills, I, again, I remember my aunties and my uncles, my grandpas, grandmas sitting in circle and talking about their vision of Blue Quills. And they would talk about how, when they took over, how they saw the, the change from a residential school to something that would be meaningful for, for us. And they used to talk about, they used to dream about, and they'd say out loud, you know, we're going to have teachers with a B.Ed. degree. We're going to have nurses. We're going to have lawyers. We're going to have administrators. We're going to have administ administrators. And they'd name all of these professions, carpenters, you know, <laughs> welders. They would name all of that. And then they would always come back to, we have to change the curriculum. Mm -hmm. At that time, I didn't really understand what the curriculum had to do with all of this. So when I started working here, uh, I began in 1982 after my admin degree. And uh, for six years, it was a learning phase. And I was, at that time, it was still very Western-based in terms of the structure of the organization. It was a hierarchy, it was bureaucracy, we had different programs, different leads and different programs. And so <clears throat> I fell into that because I had taken a Western education mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. I, I accepted that as, you know, because I hadn't really grown. But during that time I had also began to journey back to ceremony. And so when I came back with my degree in education in the 90s, I began to um, come here with a critical mind and I didn't feel comfortable in being on top of this hierarchy with having the power and the authority to make you know things happen I didn't feel that was right that just wasn't me and so and then being in ceremony and reflect every time I would you know there was a lot of ceremonies that was starting to take place at Blue Quills I began to recognize there needs to be a change a change in a lot of stuff and first of all to flatten that organization mm -hmm. you know and that those teachings and to give voice to everybody because in ceremony we do mm -hmm. everybody has a gift everybody has a place and we bring them together right and I th thought of the organization I thought hmm we need to do that here and also the curriculum part of it began that began to make sense and trying to negotiate with mainstream institutions to to broker their courses just wasn't feeling right. And I would go back to them and I would say, no, that we want, we want you to change the curriculum. And they would give it their best shot at it. Mm -hmm. Then I began to realize they don't know what they don't know. Mm -hmm. And so I, I start off with um, pulling in William Aguiar and I said, William, you're going to develop a curriculum. He says, what? I said, yes. <laughs> He's, you're going to develop a course in parenting and then relationships. And I said, all of the stuff that has was taken away from us at Blue Quills, mm. we're going to focus on that. Mm -hmm. Because what happened is we lost our language. Mm -hmm. It was taken away. There was no ceremonies here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we 
disconnected from our family and our communities. Mm-hmm. So the parenting, when we left here, we didn't know what parenting meant to be good parents. We didn't have anything to guide us. And so our voices had been taken away. Mm-hmm. All of those things. And I thought, what an opportunity to make that shift. Because at different times, the elders used to come to me and say, burn this place down. It has horrible memories. Mm-hmm. There's so much uh, pain in that place. And I felt strong and I used to say, something told me, uh, you know, to guided by whatever. I used to feel, no, we can't. Nobody's ever going to believe there was a residential school here. This school we can transform Mm -hmm. to be really, truly ours. And I had the support of the board as well. I remember one time coming upstairs and there was a board meeting. And Carl Quinn from Blue Quills was the president that time. He's sitting in the boardroom. And he says to me, he says, you know, Leona, someday when I walk into this building, I want to smell the sweet grass. Mm. I want to hear the drums. I want to hear song. I want to hear the language being spoken. I want to see us on these walls. And that was, wow. That was again, some, you know, a voice driving me to that direction and saying, yeah, we're right on. Mm -hmm. And also as we changed our, our um, organization, giving people voice, everybody had a voice you know sometimes we'd have um, uh, people coming into into our staff room to present something and we never introduced ourselves as in the positions Mm -hmm. and I know a lot of times the people that came in were really puzzled (laughs) (laughs) who's in charge who are you (laughs) because you know different voices just came out and Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't about position, it was about voice and our knowledge of the subject. Mm-hmm. And so, and then what what came of that is that we would have a circle every Monday morning. Mm-hmm. And we didn't walk in with an agenda. Mm-hmm. The staff would say, I've got an agenda item, this is important for me. And that's what we would discuss. And sometimes when, when we were making some, doing something new or bringing in something new, we had about three or four of those meetings before before mm-hmm. there was a complete understanding. And uh, sometimes it wasn't agreed by all. Some reserved their, their decision. But what we'd agreed on is that if the majority decided on that, I'll, I'll be there to support it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they still gave voice to why they felt it wasn't necessary. But they we, we went on that. And when we... When we then delivered it, or we went through with the discussions and made that decision, then we didn't have to go back and uh, correct anything because mm-hmm. we'd already discussed it. And that's part, I, I remember sitting in, there was a trailer right here, and uh, we had a group of elders coming in, and uh, there was some discussion, this was all morning, and there was some discussion, something was not right in this place, I think the ceremonial um, the ceremonial table or altar wasn't set right and somebody mentioned that and so we left at noon and when we came back it was all straightened out hmm. nobody was told you know you should correct this they said oh, we've got concern about the way we've got that 
and it was all done and hmm. we never knew who did it yeah and that's what happened in yeah. our staff meetings yeah we didn't have to say you do this you do that yep and also what it did was it brought the the relationship building is so key mm-hmm uh, so we developed really strong we developed a family here where uh, relationships were so key and we also began to recognize every gift in every staff member mm-hmm. and so when we had when we were doing projects you know and we tabled it and we said this is a project is does this align with our vision and our purpose our mission we discussed that yeah that's something I would you know we can do for our communities and so when we started deciding who's going to do what we didn't have to tell people Mm -hmm. you're going to do this and they say i've got the computer expertise oh i've got research on that matter oh i can write that oh Mm -hmm. i'll work with you on that and was like and because we weren't fully funded Hmm. that's the way we have succeeded at blue quills Mm -hmm. And so I think, um, and what that transitioned as a, as a staff, it was easier to transition that uh, philosophy into our, into our, uh, our uh, classrooms. And also there were times when I taught as well, when there was losses in the community and people mm-hmm. were grieving, the students would come together and we knew there was such heartache and pain. We would say, okay, good put your books away we're going to do a circle we're mm-hmm. going to do some healing work we're going to d- discuss this and that's what they would do and then when we're able to do that when you can do that then the academics can come in if you don't then everybody's in the grief state you know and there's not support but i think that was really helpful as well as i remember when we were delivering our, our creed program it became a certificate program so we did an evaluation of it at the end of two years, I think. And what we found was that the non-natives that were in the classroom were speaking it, and our students, our Cree students, understood it, wrote it, but didn't speak it. Mm-hmm. So in the evaluation, what came about was that, again, history. We got to know our history. Where's the pain coming from? Where's mm-hmm. the resistance? You know, and the teachers, uh, the students are talking about how what prevented them from talking? Mm-hmm. You know, my parents said, yeah, I shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. You know, and my experience has been, we're punished for that. Mm-hmm. I don't teach my kids. My parents didn't teach me because, and that again is a history of be, not being allowed or being punished for that. So I think, uh, so what we did was shifted, shifted the, um, the how we presented our, our, our studies and in Cree, every morning in every class, we started with a smudge. Mm-hmm. And then, if we had, if we needed a circle for, we knew what was happening in communities, we'd have a circle, and then we were able to carry on. So I think education is also healing. Mm-hmm. And ceremony, I think, we need to really look at that healing through ceremony. We need to understand what ceremony is. We need to support ceremony. We need to support ceremonial holders. We need to continue carrying that message forward. Yeah. <coughs> That's okay. I remember a when I was in, I was actually, it was Sherry Chisholm, who was my instructor at the time, who's now the current president of Blue Quills. Um, and I was taking one of her 
leadership courses and it was the first time that it was first day of class and basically she explained to us that starting of every class like that day she was going to open with a prayer but moving forward every day she would offer tobacco to a classmate to start in prayer <clears throat> and I remember like everybody was kind of like ooh, like nobody had ever been I think majority of us haven't ever been offered protocol because this was quite a few years ago to say a prayer mm -hmm. uh, publicly and so what a learning experience that was and then of course you know praying in our own way and in different ways whether that was through song or through words or in a language um, and so those are just some of the things that I you know that stick with me that really taught me not necessarily about the academics but about our our ways and and being comfortable in our ways and actually doing and living it yeah in a sense right and I think even when Leona was talking again I was thinking about and you said you said William Aguiar's name <laughs> we're both like we were both we like were oh <laughs> William shout out to William Aguiar um changed our life <laughs> William Aguiar changed my life and it's interesting because I remember vividly sitting in William Aguiar's class and it was a social work with families class which I now teach at McEwen University and I've always wanted to emulate William and I don't think I've successfully done that but I remember sitting in William's class and we were talking about family systems and anyone who knows William knows he's very animated he's a very like he's a very animated instructor and professor and he gets re he gets real and raw in the yeah. classroom he doesn't pussyfoot around anything and so he's at the front of the class I'm sitting in the classroom he's talking about family systems and all of a sudden everything just hit me all at once and I'm like oh my gosh I am sitting in the same classroom that maybe my dad was sitting in when he was seven and the place that his spirit was taken from him is the place that I'm reclaiming mine and what a profound moment. I remember sitting there and I remember my body shaking. And I was I went home that day and I just felt I felt I felt lighter, but I also felt this surge of energy that I had a responsibility and that it was bigger than me. And by that time I had already had my oldest daughter, she was a newborn baby, and so I felt this like this surge of energy go through me that it's like this is bigger than me. This is way bigger than me, right? And I think that what also came up for me when you were talking was about that agenda-based learning, right? We all go into classrooms, whether we're a student or an instructor, and we have that there's an agenda, right? And Blue Quills really helped shift that agenda-based instruction, right? So like you said, if there is a death in the community, if there is a pandemic, if there's some sort of like crisis happening, we have to stop. And earlier you used the word wetna, I heard you say that word and, and from what I've learned from you, that means to really slow things down. And I think that my education at Blue Quills has taught me about slowing things down, not just, you know, in social work practice or in, um, or in social work policy development, but also just for myself, slow down, Amber, slow down, take a second, think about this process thinking, right? And so you reminded me of those teachings that I had here that we always hope that people will have, right? And But 
you, you really, you really brought that up for me around that slowing things down. Like Terry was talking about with Sherry, like you're asking me to say the prayer. Like I've never been asked to do that before. And what a way to honor people, mm-hmm. you know, in their education and just for themselves, right? Education can be healing. Yes, definitely. It can be. It and is. it should be. Yeah. It should be healing. Absolutely. You know? Well, I can speak to that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll sit back. Oh, let's go. Let's go, Leona. Let's do it. Well, I right now, I after I uh, retired, I've been involved in uh, workshops mm. and uh, training. And uh, a lot of times I tell my story uh, to... And, and I recall what it was like, you know, growing up in a residential school and then just going off to work and not really, and, and I felt, wow, you know, I'm successful. I've got a job. <laughs> I got a home. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and of course we were taught to cleanliness is godliness. So I really worked hard at scrubbing my kids. And <laughs> Their hair perfect. <laughs> perfect hair. And perfect. You know, everything appeared externally. It, it appeared like I had, and I felt I was good. I, I was okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was when I started going back to, I did a lot of counseling because I knew there was a lot of pain there, but I didn't know where the source came from. But it was in the education that I became aware that I was truly not okay. Mm-hmm. And my choices were, were based on pain, were based on the fact that, and I've told you girls that, you know, as an adult, um, at, at 24 years old, I got married. But really, that's, you know, adult years. But when I think back now, I probably was at a maturity level of a seven, eight-year-old mm-hmm. um, because of the of of the woundedness that happened here, the lack of um, of being treated and going through the stages of development I would have gone through had I been home mm-hmm. um, to be honored as a woman at twelve years old, thirteen years old. That didn't happen here. We were ashamed when that happened here. You know, there's so many things that happened that had we been at home, we would have had the language. We would have had, in terms of our relationship, our roles and responsibilities in the language, mm-hmm. uh, in ceremony, um, the protocols, you know, how we carry ourselves as women, and being mentored into motherhood, mm-hmm. and even a spouse, a community member, that would have happened. Mm-hmm but it didn't happen here. So for me now going into and being an adult and uh, the expectations I was like, yeah, I behaved like an adult just because I could have a job and I could cook supper and all of those things. But deep down, I was very wounded, mm-hmm. very, very wounded. And so of course, uh, and then when you're in that wounded space and I didn't know that, I just felt that that's, you know, that's the way I was. I had lost my voice. I never spoke up for myself. Mm-hmm. And I was mentored to be, to, to serve. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did, you know. Uh, and sometimes it wasn't fun being a servant, mm-hmm. but that's the role you took on. And not recognizing where does this come from? Is this, is this reality? Is this how people live? Yeah. And you live that way. Mm-hmm. And so 
you have, and then you pass that on, you know, all of those quirks that you have um, because of the lack of, of the parenting, the lack of community, the lack of language, the lack of culture, mm-hmm. all of those. And then you, you have your kids and you don't even know that what you're doing is not right. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not the way we would have been had we been at home mentored by our aunties and our uncles and our parents and, have, and developing relationships. Um, because again, I survived here. I personally survived here by not having relationships. I yes. just protected myself. Yes. And so going into adulthood, I still didn't befriend, befriend anybody. Mm-hmm. I was afraid of relationships. And so, you know, it's a very lonely life. Mm-hmm. It's a very different life. And so what did it take for me to, to find my voice? It took ceremony. It took ceremonial healing. It took mentorship with our elders. Um, and, the, and so when I began here, hiring an elder, creating a space for an elder, and not just somebody that come in and say a prayer and then just sit in the background, somebody with a voice, somebody whose door was open for the students, for the staff, somebody who could come in ceremony, somebody who would tell us our, the legends that were very important, their experiences, uh, the healing work that had to be done. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the songs that they sang, it just uplifted everybody. The drum, every morning when the drum's beating and it's the singing that took place. It was awesome and it still continues. And I think it's, it's important. We have to learn about ceremony and we have to be a part of ceremony. If we don't believe in it, at least give an opportunity to create relationships with their ceremonial holders, elders, so that if we're working with children or families, you can direct them. You can provide the support for them mm-hmm. to be able to attend those ceremonies. Exactly. Yeah. You know enough. Yeah. And and I wanna uh, I wanna say, um, and, and I know that we're gonna have to wrap up our our podcast here um, soon, but I I want to acknowledge. Um, that story that you just shared about um, that that voicelessness and how you survived by not having relationship, and I've heard some of our other aunties' stories. We've had we I I have an, other aunties that have publicly shared their stories and talked about how that survival came from not being defiant, uh, not you know wearing your socks the way you want to wear them because then there's punishment for being different. And so we know now because of the bravery of the stories of the folks who survived residential schools, Terry and I's generation have an understanding of why that creativity was stifled, why the voices were stifled, and why our our parents parented the way that they did. And it wasn't because we have bad parents, it's because our parents learned to not be creative, mm-hmm. to that creativity was bad, that having a voice was bad, and that being close to someone and having a relationship and being silent was how you survived. Mm-hmm. So that story that you just told explains so much for us as social workers or even as practitioners or even just as a community member about how healing it is to just build relationship that the healing happens in building the relationship 
And that healing happens by standing up and saying, no, no, I'm going to create a boundary. That's not how we're going to do this, right? And, and I think that there's so much bravery in that. And I think that, again, that really speaks to our folks who might be listening to the podcast who are maybe non-Indigenous social workers or even Indigenous social workers who don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, that that story really speaks to the work that we still have yet to do in our generation mm-hmm. of rebuilding relationship that people are still afraid to build relationship and for, and not at no fault of their own. Right. Um, and I think that that's a really important story mm-hmm. that speaks to our relationships and what we're doing here. Yeah. Yeah. At one point in time, I think I was 12 when the Department of Indian Affairs decided that we should be integrated into town schools. Mm. And I remember going there. Well, we weren't very welcomed at all. But anyway... The difference that I found was that, you know, the individualism showed up really clearly for me and also the competition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we never, we were taught never to elevate ourselves above anybody else. Mm-hmm. So to compete in marks was just against who we are. Mm-hmm. Even to give voice, you know, Iwa uh, Moon, you know, that's the term in Korean terms of you're challenging Mm. we were taught not to challenge and for me I was so I guess amazed at how these non-native kids would challenge the teachers would question the teachers we were taught to be quiet Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we just we didn't and in a way uh, in the school in the residential school kept us quiet but at home we were quiet because we respected Mm -hmm. you didn't challenge an elder ever Mm-hmm. You listen, you learn. Um, so mm-hmm. then when we went to, then we were seen as hmm, not very bright. You never say anything, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and that carries on, you know, it just carries on. Um, but I think when we begin to really see the difference in, in worldviews, um, an example of that is uh, I co-sleeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spencer, my grandson Spencer, being autistic, I co-slept with him, and I remember in kindergarten, I w- and when I was when I used to go do my workshops, he would be very sad, lonely, and uh, depressed. That's a grief, five-year-old, four-year-old, and so he would act out in class, and and they rec- they began to recognize that Cookum's gone. You know, Spencer's not 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 cooperating. So Jody and I got called in, and <clears throat> the conversation was that I, because I had an unhealthy relationship with him, <laughs> because co-sleeping is not the way to be, and that maybe that I, sh- I should address my unhealthy relationship, mm. and that, um, that, it, it, that I probably had five years left you know and what's going to happen to him when I'm gone oh my gosh anyway <laughs> but and, and Jody was so yeah. upset mm-hmm. she, she, we left there and she was crying how could they say that I said you know Jody I think this is a clash of worldviews yes the law or social services you know don't uh, approve of co-sleeping with a child mm-hmm. and for us we believe that a child is more is more in spirit 
mm-hmm. than human world up until they're seven. Mm-hmm. So I'm sleeping with a spirit. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that's my responsibility because his spirit yeah. can journey into the next world. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we were afraid of that because he used to quit breathing. Mm-hmm. So I thought, this is the way we can keep him grounded and I'm awake when he starts losing his breath. And, uh, but that's a, a completely different worldview. Yes. You know, placing a child in their own bedroom at a very young age. And that's, for us, it's keeping them a moss bag, you know, holding them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I remember late um, George telling the student, he says, one thing that disturbs me, he said, when a child is crying, can't control its, its crying, when the baby's crying, and you take them and you go put them in the bedroom and close the door. Mm-hmm. He says, that child is not capable of reasoning and saying, I have to quit crying. Mm. They're in pain for whatever reason. Your job is to nurture them until they quit and then you put them to bed. Mm-hmm. He says, they are a spirit. Mm-hmm. I always remember that story. Mm-hmm. And that's the wonderful thing about having elders in the classroom. Yes. Those are the stories, our beliefs, our values that come out through them. And, you know, he wasn't very, he's never offensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He just said, this is, a, this is our values, this is our belief system. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so true, like when you think of the way in which George would put that, but when we think of it in social work terms of, you know, how do we as adults help our, our babies yep. self-regulate, regulate in, in those times. And so yep. um, in closing off, I know that um, one of the things I just wanted to add was that, you know, in, in our natural laws, our creator's laws, you know, the, always the first one is always about love. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, when we talk about residential school and we talk about the work um, we're doing in our own healing is that um, the the love that we, we have within our communities, the love and the passion that we have for one another, um, and the love that our fathers or Leona didn't receive within Mm -hmm. residential school and how we're sitting here today together at Blue Quills in starting in ceremony and you know we've we're just amongst each other in such a good way and um and I love you guys and I thank you both for always teaching me many things in my own journey um in social work I'm gonna start crying quit (laughs) no End it with a good sub. End it with a good mock too. (laughs) My eyelashes will fall off. No. (laughs) No, and and thank you. And and I love you both as well. And and I think that that is really important. And thank you for saying that because um, one of the things that I will say to my students in Western academia is I'll tell them, I love you. And they look at me like, what? (laughs) You love me? We have... In, in in the Western world, we've sexualized love. We have yeah. demonized love to be something that is only shared between two intimate partners. But I can love you and and in no other way besides just genuine human love. I love you, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's... Uh, thank you for saying that because you reminded me of, of how important it is to to remind people that you love them. Exactly. And I think the other thing too that's important is that I think what saved us here and continues to save us is our humor. Yeah. The ability to laugh, <laughs> laugh at ourselves, you know, and to, and to laugh. I think that's really healing. Two Crees in a Pod.